You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. It's good to have you here today. And I think this is going to be a fun series to begin uh, just for the next four weeks and to start today. So I kind of have to define what do I mean by seculus in the first place, and then what's this whole thing going and where it's going. We'll get to that. We're going to start with a couple of passages, words from Jesus himself, from the Gospel of Matthew. You can follow along, by the way, um, through the version of the Bible. There's a wonderful little um, extra in the more section called events, and you hit that, and you hit your location here. Thrive Community Church comes up, and all the notes for this message come up, including the texts. Uh, the scripture text. So that's kind of fun to follow along. And when you take notes, it saves it and you keep them, right? Is that the way it works, Kathy? Yes. Yeah, cool. All of them. You have them all. You're better than me. <laughs> you asked me on Tuesday what I preached last, you know, so I was like, um, I'm working on the next one. That's, I mean, I'm just always. <laughs> Anyways, okay. So we're in Matthew chapter 6 and then in chapter 11, we're going to read today. Okay. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? At the same time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, That you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Before we get into this message, I just do want to say, hey, welcome back, Andy. Uh, Andy Blankenship had surgery just 10 days ago. Um, And uh, we, I think a lot of people here and across, uh, a lot of Christian friends from all over have been praying for you. And we are just so thrilled that I know it's going to be a long recovery yet. But we praise God to where you are already, you know. I think the doctors and surgeons at University of Miami are probably amazed that you've made this progress so far. Might not feel like it, okay. But uh, anyways, it's great to have you here and to see how well you're doing. Okay. I don't know if you probably will agree with me on this. America has become more secular than it ever has been. Does that make sense? Because right now, if you did Pew Research, actually did a survey of religious trends in America, and they asked all the adults across the United States your religious preference, and now the category of nuns has grown to 23% of America. They put none. They don't want to say they're anything in particular. And in the younger generations, millennials and younger, that is at 35%. But that does not mean we are less religious. It just means we don't identify with a specific religion. 
Okay. David Zoll wrote a book called Seculosity, and that's where I've kind of gotten the word seculist from. And in it, it's a worthy read. And in it, he says this, the marketplace and replacement religion is booming. We may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we've never been more pious. Religious observance hasn't faded apace secularization so much as migrated, and we've got the anxiety to prove it. We're seldom not in church. Fascinating insight, isn't it? I think he's right. Now, if you look at uh, religion in terms of creeds and rituals and church attendance and buildings and organizational charts and things like how much people pray and do this and that, you'd probably say America's becoming less religious. But if you look at the way religion traditionally has functioned in people's lives, and now look at how people are functioning without religion, you find what's really happened is just a switcheroo. They are now using secular things to fill the gap that religion used to have in their lives. It's gone from um, simply from going to church to going to soul cycle. Okay? From placing trust in a higher power to finding purpose and meaning in work becomes the end all and be all. From the big guy upstairs to that romantic relationship becoming the purpose I am here and what will complete me. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to look at this where religion and the secular have joined together to create a new thing called seculus and how that actually is a problem. Not because you need to be religious, but because the secular and religious together doesn't work any better than being religious actually worked for a lot of people. And so we're going to look at four different areas. I could have picked probably 20 different areas, and you can probably come up with those, where people have really kind of focused their whole lives on something. Right? And they find their identity and their meaning and all that stuff from that one thing. And now that becomes the thing in their lives that they wrap everything around. But we're just going to look at four. Today we're going to talk about busyness and how busyness has now become almost a religion itself. Next week we'll look at romance. Then we will look at work. How work has become the identity for so many people. And finally we're going to do one that seems kind of odd. But I think I have just noticed it. It's this kind of alchemy between business and consumerism and feelings and experience and marketing called Jesus land. Okay? It's the substitute for actually following Jesus, and people have kind of bought into that in one form or another. Okay? So we have to look at ourselves, too, and how Christianity is handling this. And I don't think it's all that great sometimes. But today we're at busyness. Being busy, it's a good thing. It's really a good thing. But when a good thing becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes a problem. And that's what's been happening to people's lives. So we're going to look at these three things. We're going to describe what busyness is. Then we're going to diagnose what's really behind our busyness. And finally, we're going to say, let's get over it, okay? Cure ourselves from this. Or we don't cure it, but what's the cure? So describing it. Hey, do you go up to, I bet this happened recently, this week maybe, you said to somebody, how are you doing? And what was their response? I'm busy. Busy. 
Is that an answer? <laughs> Do you understand? It's not really a answering the question, but it almost becomes a badge of honor. Have you noticed that? It becomes, a bad, it becomes the humble brag. Oh, I'm so busy. But the opposite would be terrible. Can you imagine um, you go up to somebody and you say, how are you doing? Nothing. You know, <laughs> it doesn't answer the question either, but they'd almost be scared to say, I have nothing to do. I'm just being idle. I'm wasting time. <laughs> That's the worst thing you can do in our society now. That means you must be worthless if you're worth doing nothing. Haven't you noticed that? Yes, Atlantic Magazine, I think I brought this up. In March 2017, they, they, uh, the authors of some research, um, and I'll probably destroy their last names, um, Beliza, Pahariah, and Keenan together published the fact that they found that the new status symbol in our society is seeming busy. We have to out-busy each other. And they went, the gleam of both being well off, but at the same time, poor, time poor, the author writes, is driven by the perception that a busy person possesses desired human capital characteristics and is scarce and in demand on the job market. You gotta look busy, even if you aren't busy. And so you fill your life with busyness so that you have value. Isn't that wild? Now, it used to be, if you, um, they said in their research, that the one thing everybody tried to do in our society for a long time is if you were wealthy and well off, you didn't have, you see all these, uh, you know, you see Downton Abbey. The rich people do nothing in those. They have other people do it for them. And that was the status symbol at one time. The amount of leisure time you had said you were somebody. Now it's the amount of busyness that says you are somebody. So our schedules have become the barometer of our personal righteousness. What used to be found in the Christian faith is now found on your Google calendar. <laughs> you know, it's just fascinating to me. And we would be ashamed if we're not busy. Actually, something is wrong with us if we're not busy. And we actually look at things like, Oh, um, I just can't stop. I can't stop this. I have to. If I stop, then other people will take my, you know, and you've got all these reasons for it. So that now, this last year, 27% of vacation days that the U.S. had were not used because I just can't take time off. I'm too important at work. There's always been a lot of work to do. And there will always be a lot of work to do. But today, when we have substituted and kicked religion to the trash can, we've substituted our busy schedules for our self-worth. And it's taken on almost a religious quest to keep busy, to stay busy, to keep going. That's what I mean by secular and religion together, or religious together being seculous. Okay? So that's what describes this understanding of busyness. Now let's look at diagnosing it. Okay? 
what's really behind it. And um, you can't really, even though you try, you can kick religion to the curb, but you can't really extinguish the human need for transcendence. That is, that there is some meaning or purpose or direction or goal in life. And if religion doesn't do it, you're going to find something to take that place. And since we've done that, we find it in our schedules. Now, the theological and psychological term for this, David Zoll writes, we expend for the sake of feeling righteous is called self-justification. And it cannot be overstated as a motivation in human affairs. If you want to understand what makes someone tick or why they're behaving the way they are, trace the righteousness in play, and things will likely become clear. Your colleague who can't stop working, odds are she equates busyness with worthiness. Your perpetual single friend who can't seem to find someone who measures up to his standards, it could be that he's looking to another person to complete him, to make him feel like he's enough. Now, in Jesus' day, the issues were not the ones we have today. They weren't just busy for busy's sake or trying to fill their calendar to find meaning in their life. They were just trying to get by. The peasant culture that day was always scrambling for food, for shelter, for clothing. They were hoping for just a little more security, a little more in their, um, you know, in their flower bin, a little more in their cupboards, a little better shelter, a better home, just another extra garment, and then they'd feel satisfied. They'd feel like they had enough. And Jesus, even in that day where we would look at it, of course they're desperate, of course they're working for these survival things. Even in that day, Jesus looks at them in our first reading in Matthew 6 and says, why are you so anxious? And he just diagnosed what's our real issue. Anxiety. Anxiety is such a driver behind much of human life. And anxiety comes in all shapes and sizes, but anxiety is increasing in our society. You can read all of the articles on this, but we are more anxious than ever. We have more than we ever could ever have. We have the possibility of more leisure time than ever. We have more machines and more technology to do the difficult work in our lives, and yet we are more anxious than ever before. When I've talked to Dr. Bruner at uh, the University of uh, Florida Gulf Coast, he's the head of CAPS, which is uh, Counseling and Psychological Services. He has statistic after statistic and personal experience of the university itself to know that the demand for counseling, the demand of anxiety and depression disorders has doubled in just a decade. About one out of every five students is facing these things. Isn't it fascinating? Anxiety is on the rise across all aspects of our society. And we always just need a little more, whether it's food, clothing, or shelter in Jesus' day, or today, more fun, more exposure, more uh, enjoyment, more experiences, more money, more stuff. It's always a bit more. And we're just on that anxiety treadmill. David Zoll says, our religion 
is that which we rely on, not just for meaning or hope, but for enoughness. Enough's enough. Listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours, that if we got enough, we would be enough. And so we keep torturing ourselves with this. Jesus had it nailed down 2,000 years ago. Why are you so anxious? We torture ourselves with a false goal, twist ourselves around it to try to reach something that will never give it to us even if we got enough. It's never enough. It's the wrong kind of enough. Now, busyness might not be your thing. Maybe it is, huh? But just look at what exhausts you in your life, whether it's work or vacation. (laughs) Whatever is exhausting you, whatever is tiring you, whatever is draining you, it's very possible that is the thing that you're looking to for your validation, your vindication. That's the thing you're chasing to give you enough. And it doesn't work. So here's the description. Uh, we've talked about the description. The diagnosis is you're seeking to be busy and use busy to validate you in ways that won't work. You're God's substitute. Cannot play God. Why are you so anxious? That's how Jesus says it. So what's the cure? You know, what I love is Jesus uh, does not give you one more thing to do. He doesn't say, okay, well, if you just fit this into your schedule, if you just learn to time manage better, if you just learn to work smarter, not harder, oh my gosh, I am so tired of that phrase, right? If you just add in 10 minutes at the beginning of the day to pray, If you just throw in worship into your schedule, your weekly schedule, fit that in, everything else will work. That's not what he says. He doesn't want to be added into your busy schedule. And if he did, if that's what he had said, he'd just be another burden to you. Just another thing to do. And that's what religion tended to be and tends to be. And I don't mind people throwing religion out in a sense. The word religion comes from the Latin word religio. And that means re, again, and ligament. You know the word ligament to connect. And in the positive sense, it's supposed to be the thing that connects everything else together in your life and gives meaning. But the negative sense comes up with a lot of people. And maybe that's what they've been throwing out. Religion, because it can be binding and like a ball and chain that drags you down and it is a burden. And Jesus knew that in his day. And in fact, he complained about the other religious leaders around him. And he said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. 
Now, it's not religious leaders today that are doing it. It's, I'm sorry to say, but it's the economic leaders, the political leaders, the philosophical type leaders, your leaders at work, the wonderful advice that you get from all those positive-minded motivational speakers. Do you realize they're not lifting a burden? They're putting one on you, giving you advice, telling you one more thing to do. Or if you just get your act together, if you were like me, but are they lifting anything off of your shoulders? No. The leaders in Jesus' day actually were speaking about the Sabbath and, and, and to take time off. But what they were doing is telling you what you had to not do on the Sabbath and putting more rules and regulations on it and restricting your life, not freeing you at all. It's fascinating. Jude, Judith Shulevitz in 2003 wrote an article, I think, in New York, uh, the New York Times, and she called it Bring Back the Sabbath. But her point was not that you should bring back a specific day to just take this off, and if you just do that, everything else will balance out in your wife. What she said, what really needs to happen is you have to still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Do you realize you continually are accusing yourself of not being enough? And I don't care all the self-talk you can do. I'm enough. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And I'm worth it is not going to solve that inner reproach of you're not enough. You're not enough. You need to do more. You're missing out. You don't have. Isn't this good? And every shiny new object that's being put in front of you by every commercial and every advertiser and every organization trying to say, if you just have this, you'll be enough. You've got to silence that. How do you silence that inner accusing voice? And that's where Jesus comes in with our second passage. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says he's the only one who's going to be the solution to this problem. There is no other God substitute than the living God himself. But what he says might seem a bit counterintuitive because he doesn't only say, come to me all who are laboring and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He then also says, take my yoke upon you. We're not talking about an egg yolk here. And I know none of you are probably farmers, right? And you're not from a peasant culture either. Today, still, there are yoke that are placed on oxen and other beasts of burden. And you do that. So then they carry the load of the wagon or pull the plow. And Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you? What? That seems counterintuitive. Our society says, wait a minute, you don't let anybody put something like that on you. You don't let anyone dominate your life. You don't let anyone put a yoke on you and make you do anything. You need to be free. 
You see, it was a metaphor that was used in Jesus' day. Not just Jesus was not the first time to use take my yoke upon you. Most of the rabbis said the same thing in his day and age. And it was a way of saying, you be my disciple. And to take my yoke upon you meant you follow me. You learn from me. You serve me. You live with me. You, stay, you let me dominate your life. And our society says, you don't let anyone dominate your life. If you do, you are not free. What you need to do is to be free. But here's the ironic thing that is being said by people who are not free, who are always looking for more, who are anxiously grabbing for another thing in their life to fill them up and chasing false dreams for what will fill them. Truth is nobody's free, and Jesus knew that. The truth is everybody's burdened by something. It may not be your busy schedule, but it might be something else that you have used as a substitute for the living God. Whatever that is, Jesus says, it's going to kill you if you let it dominate you for too long. Only my yoke upon you will free you. I remember... uh, Back in college, it was uh, Bob Dylan who came out, became a Christian at the moment, and wrote uh, a song called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. That's Jesus' point here. You're going to be dominated by somebody or something. You want it to be your schedule? You want it to be your accusing voice inside of you? You want it to be society telling you what's good and what's bad? Or do you want it to be me? I'm the one who will forgive you when you fail and embrace you when you follow. I'm the one who will bear your burden for you. I'm the one that you can find not just rest for your body, but rest for your soul. Where that voice is silenced because of my forgiveness over everything in your life. You'll find rest for your souls because I will carry your burden. This is how Peter said it in his first letter to the churches. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. There is nothing. You can try to toss religion out. You can toss God out of the picture with that. And our society might be doing that. You can claim to be free. And that you're still burdened. You're still bound. And you're weary. And when your self-will and willpower isn't working anymore... God's ready to step in. Jesus says he is going to be there for you. He bears the weight of your sin and carries your sorrows on himself. Does what no one else can do. So that when you take him on in your life, when you are dominated by him, you are then dominated by his grace and his word over you. And God's word over your anxiety and the chaos of your life says, quiet, be still, and know that I am God. 
I am exalted in the nations. You are loved. You are forgiven. You will never be enough in yourself. You were never created to be enough in yourself. You were not created to be independent and self-sufficient. I am your enough. I am your enough. For me personally as a pastor, you know, pastors, um, they're just as um, tempted to be busy as anyone else, maybe more so. I, I don't, because it's such an a, um, amorphous profession, wouldn't you say? That um, nobody kind of gives you a schedule other than you better show up on Sunday morning. Um, and a lot of people think you only work on Sunday morning. And so always, you're always trying to, quote, prove yourself to others that you're actually doing something, that you're busy. And I've seen pastor's schedules. I've seen my own schedule. And it's sometimes filled with busy stuff. So I report to the church what's going on, not what's effective, but look at how busy I am is kind of the the thing, oh, and everybody goes, oh, isn't that wonderful? We've got a pastor who stays busy. <laughs> That's not what God is after. I need to recall this word time and again. The reality that I find rest for my soul in Jesus and him alone. Not in my job performance. Not in any other relationship. Not in what... My church thinks of me, not in what society says of me, not in what um, anybody does, but what Jesus says. And what he says will satisfy my soul. But when I am dissatisfied with myself or when I um, am feeling exhausted or tired or worn out or kind of down, I need to keep checking my pulse and going like, okay, so what is it? What is it that I'm trying to find my righteousness in? My rightness, my worthiness. And that's what I need to go, Lord, forgive me. I've been seeking after something else. And it's not you. At that moment, it's when you need and I need to let God speak his enoughness over us. The righteousness of Jesus Christ there's no method, no technique, no pointer, no rule, no substitute for who he is and what he has done for you. And when God is your enough, when he gives you your righteousness, your worth, your value, your purpose, your meaning, your everything, then you can start living by slowing down a bit, by dropping a few things in the schedule that really are not that important by putting a few blank spaces in your schedule and letting God kind of have a free time with you there where you can rest, stop striving, take time off, even take a Sabbath and to enjoy and celebrate and relax. And maybe some of that anxiety will start to slowly go down. Maybe. I think St. Augustine said it well, about 400 AD, 450. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, in this seculous age where everything seems to be blended together and confusing, Lord God, we have too often filled our schedules with stuff just to keep busy, to feel worth it, to find some value. When our value is in your eyes, Lord Jesus, when you paid the ultimate cost for each one of us, when we were the treasure of your heart and you gave it all on that cross, Lord God, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice that you have the final word over us. Quiet our souls. May we find our rest in you, Lord, day after day. And may others see that, that we aren't as anxious or as on a quest for more, but that we are enjoying the life you give us, loving others, able to serve in whatever circumstance, that we are just the way that you want us to be. Lord God, we pray for many people we know after hearing this message who have placed busyness as their barometer for their status. We pray, Lord, somehow we can serve them by showing them your value rather than their value in stuff and things and time. We pray, Lord, that this week would be one of rest and work, of reflection and activity, but everything centered on you. Our souls are restless, Lord, but we will find our rest in you. Amen.